Hello, everybody. This is a bit of a impromptu late night call-in, and you know, might just be one of these spur of the moment little soliloquies that I occasionally do, even if the hour is advanced, because sometimes you really just need to get things off your chest and. The thing that I currently need to, quote, get off my chest is related to a little tidbit that I happened to discover while sleuthing around a bit after the shooting in Texas last week. Because I've had these recurring, uh, I guess, what you might call debates or discussions with various people who adamantly deny that there could be any conceivable connection between U.S. foreign policy and the spate of mass shootings that have uh, bedeviled the U.S. in recent years. Now, on the one hand, it's sort of interesting to look back in not-so-distant history because when mass shootings really became a, quote, thing, at least in the somewhat modern era, and I would trace that, to around Columbine as having been sort of a watershed event, at least in terms of popular consciousness of mass shootings. The number one piece of kind of explanatory pop cultural ephemera that came out of Columbine was this documentary, Bowling for Columbine, produced by Michael Moore. It was a massively, almost staggeringly successful documentary. At the time it was released in 2002... It was the number one most financially profitable documentary ever. And it was uh, supplanted years later, including by another one of Michael Moore's own documentaries in 2004, uh, Fahrenheit 9-11. But nonetheless, I mean, it was clearly something that penetrated into popular consciousness to kind of explain the dynamics around the Columbine shooting in a way that was seen as hospitable toward a certain kind of American observer, Uh, you know, more, I guess you would say, left liberal types. And part of that Michael Moore thesis, really a primary component of it, was him disavowing the idea that the prevalence of gun violence and mass shootings in the U.S. was purely explainable by the prevalence of the availability of guns. And to make that case, he pointed to what he said were the very comparable rates of gun ownership between the U.S. and Canada. Now, I think since 2002, the prevalence of gun ownership in the U.S. versus Canada has widened in in that there are are, – uh, there's a greater rate of gun ownership in the U.S. But still, at least per the rates that were available in 2002, Moore was making this argument. And his argument at bottom was that in order to really get a grasp on what was causing these mass shootings and intense gun violence in the U.S. was – unique cultural and political pathologies in the U.S. that were not present in a country like Canada. Uh, 
And one of those pathologies that Moore posits is operative in explaining why the U.S. had these heightened rates of gun violence was the distortive impact of U.S. foreign policy. In fact, Moore goes out of his way in the movie, and if you hadn't seen it in a while, I recommend at least taking a look at some of these clips. Moore goes out of his way to note that on the very day of the Columbine shooting, April 20th, 1999, Bill Clinton dropped more bombs on Yugoslavia than had been dropped at any other point in that particular war in Kosovo. Uh, so I, I'm not, I don't bring that up to somehow declare that Moore was 100% correct in positing this as a component of his thesis in Bowling for Columbine. I'm simply noting that it used to be commonly discussed or commonly theorized that there might be some connection between U.S. foreign policy and mass shootings. Whereas today, it really does seem like if you even mention the specter of U.S. foreign policy as a potentially relevant variable in these mass shootings, you can expect to be pretty roundly reprimanded by the types of people who have this fervent belief that the only defensible response to mass shootings is to jump on board with the latest kind of gun control initiative, many of which are actually furnished directly by Mike Bloomberg in his funding of all these relatively new gun control groups over the past uh, 10 or so years. So that's the only thing that you're really allowed to do, at least in terms of kind of respectable liberal opinion, is say, oh, yes, of course, we must strive for more gun control. And I'm not necessarily even objecting here to gun control per se. I'm simply noting this kind of discursive evolution and what is permitted to be discussed. And so uh, a few days ago, I came across what <laughs> struck me as a very interesting tweet and this was by uh, Michael McFall, who you might be familiar with, because he was the former U.S. ambassador to Russia, and he's one of the most vocal proponents in the punditocracy of the Biden administration's policy of sending more and more arms to Ukraine. And he's essentially an extremely hawkish pro-intervention type. And like other pundits of his ilk, uh, he took a quick break from pontificating about Ukraine this past week and pivoted adroitly to talking about gun policy in the U.S. And here's what he said, quote, May 28th, or May 26th, sorry, quote, to all the manufacturers of AR-15s, please stop. Just do the right thing. And the rest of us might consider stopping to focus on a legislative solution and instead focus on a nonviolent civic resistance campaign against these AR-15 makers directly. So that's <laughs> McFall threatening not just to support some kind of legislative prohibition on the manufacture of AR-15s, but to engage in some kind of civic resistance, whatever that means exactly. So I don't know 
what that means. Is it he wants to occupy the production plants of the gun manufacturers? Who knows? Point is, he's passionately echoing what is a very ubiquitous liberal prescription at the moment, which is to halt production of AR-15s in the U.S. or otherwise exert much more strenuous control over the ability of American citizens to obtain certain types of firearms. And this was interesting because, you know, on the one hand, McFall is calling for more strict regulation of gun ownership in the U.S. And on the other hand, he's a strident proponent of a policy which is resulting, admittedly, even by people who support the policy, in the mass proliferation of uncontrolled firearms in Ukraine. And I'm not saying that there is zero way to resolve that apparent contradiction. You know, a liberal who is of McFall's bent might argue something along the lines of, yeah, of course, I'm in favor of heightened gun control in the U.S., but in the case of Ukraine, certain other prerogatives, uh, prerogatives take primacy, meaning, you know, in Ukraine, they're fighting on the um, front lines of democracy. And therefore, you know, although it might be ideal for there to be strict gun control there as well, uh, right now we have to prioritize and flood the country with the maximum amount of weapons to aid in that crusade. So they could say something along those lines. I mean, I might reply with something to the effect of, okay, I mean, that makes tentative sense, but ought not your claimed vehement desire to impose gun control in the U.S. at least have some bearing on your position on this Ukraine policy, given that the policy that you favor is resulting in an outcome that is inimical to your position, at least in terms of U.S. gun policy, because it's resulting in the mass proliferation of uncontrolled guns throughout Ukraine. Not just to the, the military, mind you, but also to the civilian population, and you know, civilians are being drafted in Ukraine. There's not really a neat distinction between the, the civilian population and the military population anyway. Um, the point is, you could go down the line of that kind of avenue of argumentation and come up with some kind of potential resolution or not in terms of that discordance between your, the domestic view on gun control and the foreign view on gun control. But what's really striking about the sort of tenor of advocacy of a guy like McFall is that they, they don't even have any awareness at all that there could be any tension whatsoever between these two kind of countervailing viewpoints. It's just like it would never even occur to them that it might require some argumentation or reasoning to resolve that apparent contradiction. Because nobody in the media, nobody in the advocacy space, nobody in the professional activist class uh, even raises this as a point of potential tension. So it, it never even enters into their frame of mind. Um, and, you know, that would be one thing if, you know, there could be no other type 
lots of connections drawn between U.S. foreign policy and these mass shootings right now. But even in the case of <laughs> the Ukraine policy, you have a guy like McFall saying, look, all domestic manufacturers of AR-15s need to stop producing them because we're entering a new phase of gun control here. And so we have to shut down those production lines. And a lot of this consternation has been aimed specifically at this company, uh, Daniel Defense, uh, which is which produces the AR-15 style rifle that the shooter in Uvalde, Texas, apparently purchased and then used to kill a bunch of kids in a school. So a lot of people, including McFall, want Daniel Defense you know, to be shuttered, essentially. And then you do a little research and you discover something quite interesting. <laughs> what you discover is that the Ukrainian military, because it gets so much subsidy from the U.S. and has for years now, even predating this war, <coughs> they announced that they were going to be incrementally transitioning from using these kind of old-fashioned, clunky Kalashnikov rifles and adopting brand-new, advanced AR-15-style rifles. This was from a release that was put out by the Ukraine uh, Border Guard, which has been at the front lines of a lot of the most fierce uh, fighting over the course of this war since February. And in a statement that was put out by the Ukraine Border Guard, they are lauding the fact that their new model of rifle that they're using is produced in part by, you guessed it, Daniel Defense. In the statement they write, the barrel and trigger mechanism on which the accuracy of firing directly depends are made in the USA by the Daniel Defense Company. And actually, another website for these, for special ops impresarios or connoisseurs, uh, uh, claims that Daniel Defense actually obtained the license to produce within Ukraine these AR-15 style rifle systems. So that's Daniel Defense. That's the company that produced the rifle that the shooter in Uvalde, Texas obtained. Also producing vital components of the rifles that are being used as we speak, apparently, by elements of the Ukraine armed forces. So if McFall is saying he wants Daniel Defense shut down or no longer able to produce AR-15s, that would also mean, presumably, that the ability of Daniel Defense to produce components for the AR-15 that are being used by these Ukrainian freedom fighters would also be shut down. Now, I don't know if Michael McFall is even aware of this. I doubt it. And you know why? It's because he, along with so many other liberal commentators of his ilk, are experts at compartmentalizing foreign policy and domestic policy. It would never even occur to them there could be any conceivable connection between the two. And so you, lead, you get to situations like this where they can be on the one hand you know, agitating for the shuttering of these gun manufacturers and on the other hand agitating for the escalated dissemination of arms to Ukraine and not even being cognizant that there could be some contradiction there. 
And it's not just this particular company, which is you know more or less a coincidence that they happen to produce this rifle that was bought by the Uvalde shooter and also by, is in use by the Ukrainian border guard. Um, it's other high-profile companies within the American sort of domestic arms manufacturer base that also are serving these sort of dual roles. So Remington, for example, which has basically been sued into bankruptcy since Sandy Hook because this kind of precedent upending determination was made legally that they could be found uh, liable for the Sandy Hook shooting on account of the shooter in that incident using a rifle that was produced by Remington. Um, so they've declared bankruptcy just in the, or the, in the past couple of years. Nonetheless, they were able to tweet out in March, quote, we heard President Zelensky's call. Remington is sending one million rounds of ammo to Ukraine. So this is one of the most reviled companies, as, at least as relates to these mass shootings, because it produced the rifle that was used in Sandy Hook. And yet they're also sh- shelling out millions of rounds of ammo to Ukraine. So do the people who want to drastically curtail or even abolish the domestic arms industry um, also want to prevent like a Remington from being able to send ammo to the freedom fighters in Ukraine? It's not even clear that it's ever occurred to them. That's what I keep coming back to. They don't even have the most baseline awareness of any kind of connection between these issues. It just doesn't occur to them. There was actually a um, uh, an o- a f- photo that I found, apparently taken in Ukraine near the start of the war, where there's a guy, and it's unclear who this person is, the face is blurred out, but it was posted on the Reddit, the subreddit, uh, de- dedicated to fans of Daniel Defense, and it's a guy standing uh, and posing with literally the exact same model that the Uvalde shooter used of rifle um, on the battlefield in Ukraine, apparently. Um, so do we want to prevent that person from being able to use his rifle in Ukraine? Again, I, I, what I keep coming back to is just this dissonance in awareness levels about various issues. Um, and again, this awareness used to at least be somewhat in popular circulation. With whether it was the Michael Moore movie or other examples. And today it's like pulling teeth to get anybody to even acknowledge a potential connection. Um, you know, another way in which you could connect foreign policy to a mass shooting, and this is in the relatively recent past, was that in uh, 2018, a lot of, and I mentioned this in, my, in a call in last week with Richard Hanania, and he hadn't even remembered this shooting, uh, but there was a mass shooting in. Thousand Oaks, California in 2018, where an Afghanistan vet um, who was in the war during the period of most intense uh, U.S. casualties in 2010-2011 and got PTSD and became very isolated and withdrawn, he went and shot up a bar where uh, college students were gathered for this college night, a country music-themed bar. And the investigators of that shooting in Ventura County, California, concluded that he was motivated by disdain for civilians. Um, and that, you know, his PTSD was a proximate factor in causing him to do this shooting. 
So that's one way in which you could draw a connection. Another way is the kind of Michael Moore style connection from 2002 where he's just kind of more vaguely and theoretically positing this connection between just the habituation to violence that U.S. foreign policy might cause within the populace and then the preponderance of mass shootings. That one's very hard to empirically establish. Uh, and then you could also draw a connection that might be of, no, uh, of use for the gun control proponents, which is that the very company that they are now relentlessly demonizing because they produced the rifle that was used by the Uvalde shooter also produces key components used by the Ukraine armed forces in the war. But I have a hunch that that connection is not going to be entertained or something that can be discussed because you know why? That would be a little bit counter to the prevailing narrative. But nonetheless, it's good to get it at least in the factual record, even if a guy like Michael McFall uh, would have his head spinning because it would just never even occur to him to have any discussion whatsoever of this connection. Um, so I actually just did a sub stack that, was, uh, that I published right before starting this call-in. Uh, so there's additional details if you want to look at that. And um, yeah, so let's go to some callers. CR, you are up. Hello. Hey, Michael. How you doing? Hey, I'm good. Thanks. How are you? I'm doing all right. Um, I definitely uh, wanted to echo the, the point that you made of the of the liberal hypocrisy there. It's definitely one thing that kind of struck me there too. It's like, how can you guys be so? excuse the pun, gun-ho, on doing a, a gun regulation here in the States while just being completely for unfettered arms being sent to uh, Ukraine. You know, it's just, it, it, it kind of blew, blows your mind a little bit. But then when I kind of thought about it a little bit more, uh, um, you know, it, it's the kind of a little bit of, I think it's a little bit of the cognitive dissonance comes from like the classic skateboarding right now. You know what I mean? That the liberals are doing, that reminds me a lot of like what, Trump did and the Trump people did around that time of, uh, you know, it's all the it's all the illegal immigrants, right? It's all the illegal immigrants that are bothering us. So now the new one that the liberals are doing is all Putin. Ah, it's all Putin and his war. You know what I mean? So it's just like a just a you know a proxy for everybody's rage. You know what I mean? Like xenophobia has always worked for, you know, authoritarian types and that kind of stuff to distract people. You know, it's a, it's a tried and true thing that oh, you know, all your problems aren't us and our ineffectual governance and bad policies it's the other they're always the one to blame <clears throat> and so right now liberals have a, a perfect other and so they don't examine that at all any deeper than that but there is a very huge hypocrisy there that i agree that, that that's i'm i'm not for sending a single more gun to ukraine whatsoever because it's just it's just silly if you actually care about ukrainian lives you would also advocate for not sending another single gun to prolong this war yeah, and you know, there's also <laughs> another factor in this, which is that the U.S. has a lot of mechanisms in place that are at least intended to monitor the use of arms that it ships abroad. So there's something called the Arms Export Control Act that came about in the 70s and which governs what uh, foreign context the U.S. can provide arms in. And 
a lot of these mechanisms are pretty much ineffectual in that it, you know it doesn't really lead to the kind of scrupulous monitoring that at least is ostensibly intended by them. But at least they're in place. In the case of Ukraine, one of the reasons why the U.S. Congress recently passed this so-called Lend-Lease Act, you know, reviving the World War II era policy that was used prior to U.S. entry into the war to kind of furnish arms to Great Britain and other countries, the reason why they revived that in April was to so-called cut through the red tape and exempt Ukraine, exempt the shipments of arms going to Ukraine from certain provisions of his Arms Control Export Act. Um, so so the, the whole point of U.S. policy right now, at least uh, uh, a component of it, is to lessen the ability to control to quote control guns in Ukraine, um, and you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily hypocritical to the point that there could be no argumentation made to kind of resolve this apparent contradiction between the liber- these competing liberal positions. I think a smart liberal, if they were on this call in right now, could probably come up with some reasons why they don't view it as contradictory to be on the one hand supporting the proliferation of uncontrolled arms in Ukraine and also to be supporting domestic gun control in the U.S. There are conceivable arguments along those lines. My thing, again, is just that it doesn't even occur to them to make those arguments. Nobody even puts those tensions to them as something that ought to be resolved. They just so seamlessly compartmentalize the two and don't even consider that somebody might... Note that there are these potential contradictions. That, that's what's sort of most galling to me. You'd be taking their scapegoat away, though, Michael. You'd be taking the thing right now that Putin bad, Putin price hike, Putin's inflation, all this stupid fucking bullshit that you and I both know is, you know, is complete BS. But, the, the, it, you know, in, 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 in such a freaking shit world with so many people having uh, the average Joe having you know, such little political agency, political power in this country. I, I think there's some weird just, you know, like I, I can't handle it. So I just have to, you know, just you have you can't take away. He's then have to an- analyze all the other kind of bullshit angles that they have and all their other kind of stupid policies that like, why do I keep voting for Democrats? But then they just go along with everything that, you know, Trump did continuing all the Trump's policies. But uh, yeah. it was Obama. It was Obama originally that actually put in something. Right. If I remember correctly about not letting Azov get the guns back in like post made on coup. We and we first started. Well, that was under Trump. That was in 2018. I mean, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> I mean, actually, in my Substack, I found a, I found a, uh, you know, one of these kind of war chronicling Twitter accounts posted a photo early on in the war of an Azov battalion member proudly brandishing an AR-15 of a very similar kind that is on sale in the U.S. And people, you know, were celebrating it as a great triumph. Um, and yeah, in terms of the total obliteration of gun regulations or gun control in the foreign domain, there's no ability to monitor whether Azov or anybody else who might be unsavory is getting these weapons. It's just been totally um, set aside as a relevant consideration. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was actually under Trump, believe it or not, uh, at the behest of Democratic congressmen mainly, like Ro Khanna, that Azov battalion was prohibited from receiving arms or training. Um, it had been entertained prior to that, uh, but 
but including under Obama. But once Trump got in, they actually inserted the provision into a budget appropriations act. Um, and now, I mean, you can't even get anybody who would have been so steadfastly concerned about these weapons getting into the wrong hands just a couple of years ago to evince any concern at all for it today. And again, I, I don't think that they would even necessarily lose the scapegoat of Putin if they address this. But what they would lose is some of the kind of just unmitigated moral fervor that they use to simultaneously advocate for these two competing policy positions. Um, because if there were some tension between them, they might have to modulate that fervor somewhat, at least in service of providing an explanation that rationalizes why they're favoring both of these two policy prescriptions simultaneously. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure they would figure out a way to continue scapegoating Putin just as vehemently. Um, but what they would have to do is at least you know pause for a moment and consider something that might not have occurred to them. Or just, or just take like history for a little bit of an example, because the, one of the first things that pops into my head is, uh, you know, the old moderate rebels and yeah, <laughs> in Syria and shit like that. I mean, this is you don't have to go that far into recent history to see what happens when we just pour guns into an area. You know what I mean? And then they end up being in, you know, fucking the hands of ISIS or you know, or all the shit that were left behind that are now in the hands of the Taliban in Afghanistan and ad nauseum, ad nauseum. Yep. You know what I mean? So to me, I, I, it's like it's, you, you have to really kind of like be willfully ignoring uh, uh, American history and, and American uh, foreign policy, you know, over the last 50 years to really not get this. So I, I don't I, I to me for the life of me, like I said, it still kind of boggles my mind that they can have this kind of uh, cognitive dissonance, you know, and, yep. and, and uh, uh, um, I think in the case of Michael McFaul, though, I think he knows he's just a NIMBY guy. You know, they're not in my backyard. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think he does. Like, I don't. I mean, he doesn't. I, I listened to a whole debate with him. I listened to a whole debate with him that he did with uh, John Mearsheimer and Stephen Walt a couple of weeks ago, and I'm not sure he's the uh, sharpest tool in the shed. Anyway, uh, thanks, Cr. Going to go to the next caller now. Uh, Bide, you are up. Or B-Day, sorry. Congratulations. Congratulations on, oh, you got it right the first time, Michael. Don't second-guess yourself, buddy. Oh, okay. <laughs> right, yes, bye. Um, yeah, super interesting information about the, the manufacture of the AR-15s and how that's, that's a hypocrisy that I didn't really think about. And I'm not surprised it hasn't really been information that was widespread on uh, you know, our news networks or anything like that. Uh, I I remember hearing something, too, about a correlation between U.S. foreign policy and, and sort of uh, U.S. deployments in war and the prevalence of mass shootings in the U.S. Do you know anything about that? Um, you know, I think that I, I, I'm sure there are some studies that don't come to mind immediately, which kind of which posit. A correlation along those lines, or at least investigate one poten a potential correlation along those lines. I mean, I and I talked about this with Richard Hanani last week, and I, I, I agree, in, in, at least in the sense that if we're talking about mass shootings, meaning these spectacular events where somebody targets a public venue of some kind and just indiscriminately opens fire and tries to kill as many as people uh, people as possible, although they do happen somewhat recurrently. 
in the U.S., they're still such astronomically unlikely events that it's very difficult to extrapolate anything from them with a statistically sound basis. Um, at, at, at that said, I mean, you can examine particular examples of a mass shooting, like the one in 2018 that I mentioned, that do have pretty indisputable connections to at least something right. to do with U.S. foreign policy, like this, you know, Afghan, uh, Afghanistan war veteran with PTSD becoming isolated, withdrawn, and just shooting up a bar. Um, right. Whether you right. can then infer from that that there's some broader-based correlation, I'm not sure. It, it, it's, it strikes me as plausible, um, but I almost think it's not even necessary to get into it on that level or that scale, right? I mean, you can just look at these individual incidents and draw a pretty direct correlation. So, I, I think, yeah, I think to some extent, I, I guess the only place where I'd have some pushback as to uh, we can't really, or the scarcity, like the, um, the rarity of these events making it impossible for us to, to really draw anything broader from is, you know, when we look at these events in America in comparison to other countries, right? Uh, yes, these sort of, true mass shooting events, which, you know, happened in Uvalde and uh, El Paso and, uh, you know, all these other places that they've happened in America are still very rare. Uh, But it's clear that they're a lot less rare in America than they are in other countries. And of course, there are a lot of different reasons for that in different countries. Uh, Some of it is probably, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to argue that a gun control does not play a role there. Um, but aside from the, the gun control itself, I guess where, where I really get caught up with these things is I, I, I don't know if there's something particularly sort of poignant in American society that makes us more prone to these events happening. And I think, uh, the shooting that you were talking about in particular with the, the guy in Texas, the social isolation and the, the lack of sort of care that he had following, uh, you know, a deployment in PTSD is, is yeah, something... it's California, actually. But... That's California. OK, sorry. Um, I mean, that one, it's almost easier to understand. But I guess what I struggle with whenever these events happen, too, is not just, you know, the hypocrisy coming from uh, people across both sides of the aisle who no one actually wants to do anything. Uh, you know, they actually, most of them seem completely invested in keeping the status quo to keep, uh, you know, in keeping the flow of weapons happening, if not domestically, then foreign. Uh, but I guess what I struggle with is, is I guess, the why. Uh, why us in relation to other places? So when I, when I look at the, the correlation or, you know, the apparent correlation between U.S. militarism overseas and the prevalence of shootings here, that gives me more of a, uh, I guess, like a psychological basis to try to understand these things. And I, I'm not saying it's, it's accurate or anything. It's not like I parse the data and you, you seem to know a lot more about this stuff than I do, but that is kind of the question that I'm always left with. And, you know, maybe, yeah, I think that, I think that's a reasonable question. You know, I, I, when I hear, and I'm, generalizing, but often you'll hear variations of the, this point made by people on the right who are against gun control of any kind. 
<coughs> excuse me, they'll say, you know, policy or law would have no effect at all on the prevalence of these kind of mass shooting right. events. Right. And that seems like a categorical statement that defies common sense. I mean, of course, it would have to have some impact. I mean, even if you just look at what the Buffalo shooter from a couple of weeks ago said, he was one of these shooters who actually did put out an extremely lengthy manifesto laying out every aspect of his claims and motivation and his you know tactical um, calculations in terms of what firearm he obtained to use in the attack and why. He actually said that he was hindered by the laws in New York State where he lives from getting the kind of weapon that he would have thought to be ideal in, in the attack. And he, he contemplated potentially like using a straw buyer of some kind in, in Pennsylvania where the laws are somewhat less stringent. Um, so that's a pretty clear-cut example of law at least having some effect on the ability of a particular mass shooter from getting a weapon that is most in accordance with his designs. Um, and, I, you know, I think the fact that in Great Britain you just can't get an AR-15-style rifle, that's got to have some effect on the ability of would-be mass killers from imposing the maximum amount of damage. Now, I'm not saying that necessarily right. even would justify this or that policy, um, but I also think it's kind of inane to deny that it ha- could have any conceivable impact whatsoever. So, yeah, I think that's sort of the flip side of, of the argument um, where, you know, we now have an example from just in the past month of a shooter uh, having to modulate his actions based on the relative laxity of gun laws between just two states. Um, So, you know, it seems perfectly plausible to me that if you were to standardize the type of laws that are in place in New York across the entire country, then, you know, other would-be shooters might be hindered. Now, you can can still argue that, you know, for whatever reason, maybe you're a Second Amendment absolutist or you just don't feel like it would be justified because mass shootings are still relatively rare. I mean, you could still argue against that standardization on a federal level of the New York law. But I think to deny that it could have any impact at all on a potential mass shooting is sort of silly. Yeah, I agree. And I'd, I'd say, you know, the, even if we had the, the laws in place too, um, which would, you know, let's say we outlawed AR-15s everywhere in America and, you know, somehow we're able to get all of the guns back, which is completely implausible, I think, as far as that practically happening in the U.S., I, I do think that there's still I, I, there's part of me that's tempted to say there's some kind of psychological like twitch in U.S. society that is making people more uh, likely to carry out these sort of radical sort of events in the first place, right? Like I like even if we just had knives, would there be a lot less damage? Yes, surely. I'm I I have no question about that. But what is it about? us in particular in the situation that we find ourselves in that seems to be making a lot of people think that this would ever be a good idea in any situation right but yeah and you know an an irony there is that 
these kinds of arguments today are most associated with conservatives who are against any kind of gun control measure. Right. right? They'll say, oh, these conservatives just want to sh- shift the conversation to these cultural pathologies where, you know, they'll, they'll talk about uh, right. broken homes or even, you know, mental violence and yeah, violence in video games, yeah. mental health, anything but what people consider the, to be the main issue, which is the availability of guns. And that would be dismissed as a right-wing argument. Um, but, you know, as in the case of Michael Moore from 2002, it used to be that these more quote-unquote cultural arguments or these arguments that weren't revolving exclusively around gun law, they used to be popular among leftists or even or liberals right. or whomever, you know, I mean, non-conservatives. Right. And now we, we've gotten to this interesting point where at least, you know, discursively, they're almost exclusively associated with the right. And I just think it's worth pointing out on occasion that that wasn't always the case. Um, yeah. Doesn't mean that people yeah. on the on the right are correct or doesn't mean that the you know, liberals 20 years ago were correct. But, you know, it, it just wasn't always so intimately associated with the right to come up with potential explanations for the prevalence of these mass killings that related right. to culture in some fashion. Right. I think they became um, sort of politicized in a way that now a lot of the times, even when these conversations are posed, they're posed in a way that is inauthentic. Right. People don't actually want to get to the bottom of what the culture is here that's causing these things. They're just using it as a deflection. Tool. And I think, you know, like we we are losing a lot of these nuanced conversations that maybe could be productive uh, simply because they've become, you know, nothing more than talking points to get us through until the next mass shooting or until the next event or until the society forgets and we go back to business as usual. But, um, yeah. you know, I don't want to take up too much of your time or anything, but I really appreciate no you taking my call. Yeah, yeah, appreciate it. You know, there's actually a really good book by uh, Mark Ames that I read a couple of years ago, and this was published in 2005. It was called Going Postal. And it's basically a, a study of a bunch of events from the preceding maybe 20 years or so of a disgruntled employee, and this would be sort of the cliched way to refer to the employee, that they're just disgruntled and they snap and then they show up at their workplace and they shoot a bunch of people. Um, and Mark Ames... In this book, in 2005, is similarly dismissive of arguments that this is all just solely attributable to lax gun laws. Um, he actually makes somewhat of a more like a almost like a Marxist point about how, in a sense, these mass shootings, at least at workplaces, are spawned by you know, a, a sense of revolt against neoliberalism and the way that workplaces have gotten more and more brutal uh, and more and more authoritarian since, you know, the, the deregulation of the economy under Reagan and so on. And again, I'm not really endorsing that thesis necessarily, just pointing out that it used to be a thesis that was entertained as plausible or worth worth hearing out. Whereas today, again, it's all about cultural arguments or non or arguments yeah. that aren't strictly related to gun control that's automatically shunted aside as just right wing scapegoating right. and maybe it is in a lot right. of cases right wing scapegoating 
Um, yeah. But, it, but again, the dynamic around these arguments has shifted massively just in the past 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah, I think so. Well, All right. Yeah, well, well thank, thank you. Thank Bye. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah, appreciate yeah, it. Thanks. Um, let's go to North, if that is your real name. Hey, man. How's it going? Pretty well. How are you? Can you hear me clearly? Yeah, I can. Okay. Uh, the first thing I wanted to say was um, I don't think I don't think that there would be uh, as much of a kind of fervor to talk about guns being the main problem if it wasn't so um, denied by the other side. I think the main I think maybe you're seeing people uh, back in the early two thousands like Bowling for Columbine, looking at other uh, factors and culture and whatever elements that might play into it, um, more of a broad like concept because the NRA machine hadn't ramped up as much by then. And there was space to have that conversation. Um, but because the NRA and because of uh, conservative-minded people that didn't want to hear anything about gun control, um, you basically took away the most obvious point of like defense for, you know, slowing these events from happening, slowing these attacks from happening. Cause you said, we don't want to talk about that at all. And so you kind of hardened the other side where it's like, well, no, we have to talk about this. It's obviously one of the main things, if not the main thing. Um, and yeah, I think it's just the denial on the conservative side and the moneyed like gun industry side who won't entertain any, you know, clawback of, of people being able to obtain any guns. Uh, you force people to get louder on the other side to be like, no, we have to put in gun laws. And I think if we put in, or if, America, sorry, I'm in Canada, um, had, you know, some, uh, you know, concession to reasonable gun control, then you might see more um, reasonable uh, discourse about, okay, well, now let's talk about the other things that also contribute to this problem. Yeah, I think you're more or less right. I mean, I do think... Uh culture war attitudes around the issue of guns have hardened since Columbine, for example. And that is coupled with an unwillingness on the part of conservatives or the kind of right-wing faction of this argument to concede that gun laws or the prevalence of guns in the U.S. have any effect whatsoever on the prevalence of mass shooting events. Um, and so I do think you're probably right that the the unflinching fervor on the part of the pro-gun control side now has uh, crystallized in part because they're sort of reacting in a partisan fashion against that what they perceive as denialism. Um, and you know, because by, by 1999, yeah, there was there there was a partisan divide around guns, but it wasn't as neatly delineated as it is today. Like. Um, 
when the assault rifle ban in 1994 was passed as a component of the Clinton crime bill that actually, you know, Joe Biden was instrumental in drafting and passing, um, you still had the kind of remnants of these Southern or conservative Democrats that were in Congress who, you know, rebelled against the bill. Um, and you had Republicans, um, including like big city Republicans like Rudy Giuliani, who were extremely in favor of the gun control bill, uh, in part because they were saying it was necessary to protect police or take guns off the streets and st- stuff like that. So, so those sort of like uh, variations in the partisan sorting around the issue have more or less been vanquished today. Uh, and so I think that leads itself to more of this hardening of, of partisan attitudes around guns as sort of a proxy culture war issue. Um, and yeah, which which makes right-wingers dig in and not admit that there could be any relation whatsoever between the availability of guns and the incidence of these mass shootings, which I think is probably just not empirically true, uh, but they feel like they have to press forward with that line of argument or else they're giving ground to the anti-Second Amendment forces or what have you. Um Another actually important event that's taken place between Columbine today was that in 2008, the Supreme Court did for the first time rule on the Second Amendment and kind of codify the right to bear arms as a constitutionally afforded right. I mean, they had always been extremely reluctant to um, interpret you know, that amendment of the Constitution. Uh, but now, but in 2008, they did, and then that kind of gave more ammunition, to use a pun, uh, to the the right wing side to kind of more fervently advocate for their position. So I think there's a confluence of reasons why that trajectory has played out the way it has. But I think you know, in in broad strokes, you're you're accurate. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you to clarify was um, your connection between. Um, Gun control, uh, there being a uh, disconnect between uh, people who are gun control minded domestically as opposed to uh, who are promoting guns over in Ukraine. And to me, it doesn't, it seems like a false equivalency. Uh, It doesn't really make sense to me that you would be hypocritical to be supplying guns to a country that's in a war um, because USA is not in a domestic war. It's not defending itself against an invading army. So I don't really get how a person would be considered hypocritical to say, well, here within our supposedly peaceful, you know, country, we don't need these, this amount of guns. While if we were under attack, we probably would. Um, I don't know. Maybe you can clarify that for me. The point I'm trying to make is not necessarily that it would be automatically hypocritical to favor both of these positions simultaneously. All I'm trying to say is that there is some tension between the positions that ought to be resolved with argumentation. And so somebody can make an argument to the effect of what you've just kind of broadly laid out. Um, Because – but they're not even challenged to do so. Like it doesn't even well, I mean, occur to them as something that ought to be resolved. Because I, I'm sorry, if 
you view gun control as such a paramount principle in your political worldview, such that you're you're zealously demanding it right now in the U.S. And then you take a position in a foreign context that is totally antithetical to your stated position on a domestic context. That is a tension. That is something that ought to be resolved. And again, you can say that because Ukraine is fighting on the front lines of democracy, then you know everything about our domestic position on gun control is just wiped aside. That's a plausible line of argument to approach that tension from. Uh, but again, they're not ever even challenged on it. I, I don't get and, why you would challenge it. It seems fairly obvious to me that the the difference because if, if what obvious. they're favoring in Ukraine is resulting in the proliferation of massive amounts of uncontrolled guns, including to the just civilian population, and those guns could then be used in contexts where they are not being used for any kind of military purpose, but are just going to be used to put guns potentially into the hands of people who shouldn't have them. Then, well, that's, you know, a that's, a, that, that, that's a factor that you would think they might at least be cognizant of to take into account. That, uh, might, yeah. that, that, might, that might raise the bar for whether they think that the policy in Ukraine is justifiable. But again, they, they don't even take it into account. It's not even raised. Well, I think if you could say if that was happening for sure, that there was – if there was no Ukrainian army, if it was just being handed out to random people on the street and <laughs> – But guns were handed out to random people army. on the street. At the beginning of the war, Zelensky made this announcement where like everybody who wants an ar- a, a, a weapon gets one and they were handing them out like candy. Right, because they are forming an army. Their, their oh, I mean, it was country. just it was just a civilian. It was just there were just random civilians that were all all of a sudden being given rifles. Well, I, I mean, nobody is there doing a desk job. Everybody that there is in a war right now. So you could pretty much say that everybody there is effectively a soldier, right? Well, like, yeah, you everybody could say, that you could everybody that. who's <laughs> not in the army left the country if they could and. You know, that's why the men stayed behind and they'd sent their families on. So I, I, I kind of get what you're saying, but it seems pretty obvious to me that the differences are. Okay, well, I, I guess, know. you know, leave, leave, leave that aside. Okay, how about, yeah. how about this argument that was put forward by Michael McFall, where he's saying that the U.S. domestic manufacturers of AR-15s ought to be shut down. They should stop right. the production of AR-15s in the U.S. And then it turns out, upon somewhat cursory research that I happen to undertake, because nobody else in the media would, that these same manufacturers who Michael McFall is saying need to shut down their AR-15 production lines are sending AR-15s to Ukraine. Yeah, that seems dumb. So, I mean, does he want those production lines shut down as well? Because that would, 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 that, that's what would presumably be necessitated if his domestic demands were ever uh, satisfied. And yet, yeah, I agree. again, that's why, but that's why I'm saying it's crazy that this is not ever even brought up. I agree with you on that point. There are some tensions here that should at least be resolved. That's 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 my basic point. Yeah, I agree with you on that last point. I think the the two points that we are discussing are very different. Uh, the last one being that that particular politician said something that was dumb, and he didn't really take into consideration what he was saying, as opposed to domestic gun control and international or or foreign gun supply 
are comparable or should be comparable. Well, I mean, I I agree that it's not clear cut. I just think that the the strenuous compartmentalization of these issues sometimes obscures relevant connections that at least ought to be considered more fulsomely than they are. Um, Cool. All right. Thanks, North. And then uh, let's go to Andrew, who I'm sure is going to upbraid me for my faulty reasoning. Uh, no, actually, I'm kind of on your side with this one. I I know. A lot oh, you are okay. I'm, I'm mixing you up with the, uh, the, with a different Andrew. I'm sorry. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, it's hard to keep us all straight with just <laughs> the icons. Uh, I'm sure. Um, anyway, I kind of find your uh, question more thought provoking than some people are treating it. I know a lot of people think it's stupid and obvious, but I think that's because of some of the assumptions and uh, like conclusions they've already drawn. Like for example, that they're in a war. And uh, so, therefore, it's justified to hand out these weapons and um, that, you know, I want to kind of start this in a method, uh, methodical way. So I'm just going to start by saying that I think not I'm not referring to the last caller or anyone in particular, but I do think there's a liberal class uh, that's extremely anti-gun um, that basically views the American gun owner or the American in general <clears throat> as basically of a different a different ilk than what the Ukrainian civilian is. And uh, they basically assume that a gun in the uh, hands of an American, what, who would be an American gun owner, the kind of profile of that person is just a dangerous thing, a bad thing. They're anti-government, they're a threat, they're radicals. Um, they're basically, you know, the January 6th people. They're the enemies of democracy. And so they, on that level, fundamentally oppose gun ownership here. And so I do think that there's a sub, it may not be um, on McFall's mind, but I do think that if he was pressed, there would be some kind of uh, conscious or subconscious nimbyism about um, just the quality of people around him. I don't want them to have guns. But yeah, if I was in Ukraine, I'd feel very comfortable with a random citizen walking around with an AK because I know they're champions of democracy. And so that's the first point. And then the second thing, in terms of these, tensions, I think, that they need to be resolved. And uh, the second point that's a tension is this idea that, like I said, they're in a war there. Some people saying that they're even in a genocide. And so if you're in a genocide, there's just absolutely, I mean, then it would seem very obvious that there's no comparison. Who's got time to worry about a mass shooter when, you know, Russians, according to Ukrainian sources who have been fired now, uh, were Russian soldiers raping boys in front of their mothers, which has now uh, apparently been a claim that's fallen apart somewhat. And the person, yeah, there, just, just so people understand, because I, I think I know what you're talking about. There was this woman who worked for the Ukrainian prosecutor's office who was making these claims about rape being so widespread in. Ukraine that yeah as perpetrated by these Russian soldiers and then this woman was fired or at least it was announced that she was fired maybe today or yesterday because her evidence to support those claims wasn't really uh, up to snuff. Correct. Yeah, I don't remember her name and I uh, don't really want to know it honestly. So the uh, the the point here though is that. Uh, regardless of whether or not you believe it's a genocide, which I think it's clearly not, and I could explain a little more why later it's obvious. Uh, the the main thing is that just because uh, that of that fact, you may think it's justified, but like you're saying, it doesn't magically eliminate the downsides of shipping 
untold amounts of weapons. And these aren't just the all, you know, the terrifying AR, which is so, you know, deadly. It's anti-tank weapons. It's anti-air weapons. It's man pads where you can just walk out in a field, throw the thing on your shoulder, aim at a plane and shoot it down. And this is the kind of shit you can find it on Telegram. It's not hard. The Russians are, and this is not an exaggeration, capturing truckloads of pallets of NATO weapons. And you can find them online on Telegram if you want. If you think I'm a Russian propagandist, you can just go look yourself. So there are downsides. Yeah, I've seen these. I've seen these. (laughs) There are always these like uh, ebullient Russian, you know, pro Russian Telegram accounts posting photos of just. You know, crates and crates of stingers and everything else that they've seized. And if it's Russian propaganda, where did they get this? Yeah. Is this just set pieces or are these real? I'm pretty sure they're real. And so you've got the Europeans talking amongst themselves and they do understand the idea is not so contradictory. They they would, I think, agree with you, the average European. Um, a lot of these people are very strict on guns over there in Europe and they don't like the idea of a porous border where there's a war, where there's untold amounts of all kinds of ammunition, weapons, and uh, not just guns, but anti-tank and anti-air right there. And what you can also find on Telegram, now I'm not sure this is verified, but I wouldn't have a hard time believing it, is that those weapons are already making their way out of Ukraine and into places like the Middle East. So it's not just a danger to Europe. It's a danger to the world, including the United States. When you see the next terrorist attack, don't be surprised if you see some civilian airliner shot down by a man pad, because this is what we've done. And so just because you think it's justified because of a genocide that isn't happening, and even if you think it's justified because they're fighting a war, it doesn't mean that these consequences don't exist. And to say that there's no tension there, that it's basically you're saying what's good for the goose should be good for the gander, right? And even if you think that um, <clears throat> the pr- current situation outweighs the downsides, you can't ignore the downsides. And the downsides are massively escalated compared to just our as fucked up as our situation is here in the United States with the gun control situation. It's rifles. We're not talking about people walking into a school and blowing the fucking wall up with a. T- you know what I mean? This is a whole different level. Yeah, well, uh, Andrew, I think you very cogently articulated um, why it is, or you know, a, a big reason why it is. I think that those these downsides ought to be given more fulsome consideration than they have been. Um, Could I say one last thing? Yeah, yeah, sure. If you, if you had anything else to say, I'd love to hear it. But um, go ahead, Dan. I, I was just going to say this about it being a genocide or not, really quickly. Again, on Telegram, and even in the news, which is confirmed by, uh, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, they call it evacuations, but there are surrenders of hundreds and sometimes thousands of not just Ukrainian military, but Azov members. And there's also videos of Russians treating wounded Ukrainian soldiers. You can say this is propaganda, but there's also videos of just coming out now of certain areas uh, in the Donbass, Severodonetsk, uh, there's certain places where you can see civilians sitting out on park benches talking to Russian soldiers gleefully. So this idea that this is some kind of wave of death rolling over Ukraine, where 
people are being, you know, raped and killed and, you know, Russians are eating babies and literally everyone's getting killed and it's a genocide. It's so easily defeated by just looking at these sources. And I think it's a big problem that there's no way to get these main sources to even be viewed by a mainstream audience because uh, there's just no way to do it. Really. Even if you should. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, I, I do think that there's been very convincing evidence that there's been plenty of collateral damage, uh, some of which has resulted in the death of civilians. And, the, and Russia does bear responsibility for launching the war in the first place that, uh, you know, that one of just kind of the nest, the uh, inevitable outcomes of war is that there's going to be chaos. And some of that can result in civilians paying the ultimate price. Right. But I do think you're, you're right in that, you know, the criteria for genocide has not been at all met, I think, at least according to most evidence that I've seen. And the reason why genocide has been brought up or just declared to be the state of affairs in Ukraine is because it's a very effective propaganda tactic to cajole external powers such as the U.S. Or, uh, into intensifying their own involvement because, you know, then you could, it could be framed as this absolutely urgent humanitarian response. They, they even got Biden to say that he accuses Putin of committing genocide. And yet, you know, if that were the case, you know, if something akin to the Holocaust were happening, then you would expect Biden to, you know, drop every pretense and just launch a full-fledged military intervention, which he hasn't done at least as of yet. Although tonight, I mean, he, he, they did do this kind of savvy PR move where he puts out a New York Times op-ed and says that he's not looking to oust Putin, but on the other hand, he is sending <laughs> these long-range rocket systems to Ukraine, you know, with like a uh, gentleman's agreement that they're not going to be used to attack inside Russia, as though, you know, that kind of formal assurance can even be obtained in a chaotic context, like Right. A war ultimately uh, is inevitably going to, uh, you know, beget. He never walked back the genocide claim, right? Biden. No, not as far as I know. So uh, when you argue right. against this stuff, they call you a Holocaust. You're one degree from a Holocaust denier, but apparently Biden is saying it's a genocide and not doing anything but arming. It, the, the whole thing is just so ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, thanks for your time. I appreciate yep. it as always. All right. Uh, thanks, Andrew. Uh, sorry, Ron. Going to shut it down at this point. Um, but you know, tune back in soon and we'll get to you. All right. Appreciate everybody, uh, joining and, uh, have a wonderful evening.